We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to take a look here at the Gospel of Mark, chapter uh, 6 and verse 7. This begins a period in Mark that's going to go for the next, gosh, maybe about uh, seven chapters, the largest section of Mark. It's called the training of the 12. If you were Jesus and you knew that uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, that people were offended at you and they would not come to you and you could do not many miracles because they wouldn't come. They have said that you do your miracles by the power of the devil and you see the cross approaching and you know it's going to happen. What would you do? Well, you would start transitioning. You would be getting your men ready to take over whenever you left. And that's why this portion is called. And as a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, it goes from uh, Matthew 14 all the way through Matthew 20, called the training of the 12. And Mark, it goes for about the same amount of chapters, the training of the 12. Because this is, these 12 men are the seminal, nascent, what else do you call it, germinal, incipient group that's about to become the Christian church. And so we're going to watch and see how God does with them because these are our spiritual fathers. All of us in this room can trace ourselves back to ultimately one of these men, just like a Jew could trace himself back to the 12 uh, sons of, of uh, Jacob. So we can trace ourselves back to these men. They get their whole, they get their own book here in a little bit, the Acts of the Apostles, and we see how it's done. And so we're going to watch these men now are going to go out and they're going to preach and Jesus is not going to be there. He's going to bestow their power, his power upon them, but they're not going to see him because here in just a couple of years, they're going to go out to preach and Christ will not be seen by them. They're going to feed a multitude And you won't see Christ doing the miracle. The disciples will be doing it. Jesus will be behind the scenes. They're going to go out on the Sea of Galilee and a storm's going to come. And whereas earlier Jesus was in the boat, now he isn't going to be in the boat. You're going to do it and you can't see Jesus. The crowd won't be able to see Jesus, just them. They're going to be preaching without Jesus physically there. Why is he doing this? Because once he ascends... This is what you and I and these men are going to have to do. We're going to carry on the ministry by faith when we can't see him. Amen. So how do you do it? Well, we'll watch it in these men. They're going to go out to preach. Even after Christ has been rejected by the nation's leaders, they're going to go to the people of the nation and call out the remnant of Israel. We're going to see a new order of leaders. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin has been fired. And now a new order of men has taken over. And that is the apostles. Let me show you something. If you go back to your left to Matthew chapter 9, the very last uh, three verses. Because this sending out of the 12 to go out and preach in the nation. In Matthew 10, it gets the whole chapter. Mark, you just get about seven verses. In Matthew, it gets an entire chapter, a long chapter. This is a very pivotal occurrence in the replacement of the 
leaders of Israel by the 12 apostles. Incidentally, does Christ have this authority? Can he fire and hire who he wants? Yes, he can. The same as God could get rid of Saul and put in David. So we can get rid of these men and put in men of his good pleasure. We're going to exchange 12 for 12. And so in Matthew chapter 9, you see verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. They're distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Without a shepherd, they have got the Sanhedrin. They've got Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and lawyers and Herodians. They're lousy with shepherds, but they're not shepherds that love the sheep. They fleece the sheep and take from them. But if you'll look in verse 37, he said to the disciples, now play on verse 36, sheep without a shepherd. So he said to the disciples, we're about to have a new hiring. He said, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Verse 36, without a shepherd. 37, workers are few. This present group of leaders has failed us. You're thinking, what are you about to preach, Tommy? Don't worry. Okay. And verse 37, what you need to do is pray because you can't get leaders because you manufacture them. God has to raise them up. And so in 38, beseech the Lord of harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Boys, I want you to pray. We need a new group of leaders. Chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus summoned his 12. You see it? Pray for workers. Jesus summoned the 12. And gave them authority. He said, boys, I got some good news and I got some bad news. Good news is God has answered your prayer. Bad news, you're the answer. And I'm about to send you out. So get ready. And so we begin now the intensification of the training of the 12. A new order of leaders is about to take over the seminal Christian church. And there are abiding truths on these men that will go into the New Testament with those who have followed them, meaning you. I hate lists. I'm going to give you seven things. It's the only way you can do it. As you look through this text, you have to stop and you see things that are going to be true about them that are true about you and true about me. And so let's just check them off and go down. The first thing you see in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7 is called their message. Here is your message when I send you out. He summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. Why not send 12 out to 12 tribes? Rather, we're going to send 12 men out in pairs of two. We're going to send out six pairs. How come? Because the Bible says that by the testimony of two or more witnesses is a fact confirmed. The reason we send out two is that they're going to witness to a historic event. A historic person, and that is what the Christian faith rests on. We are not a philosophy. 
We're not a set of rules. We are not a set of ceremonies. We're not a place that you pilgrimage to. We're not a mystic people that have religious experiences that bind them. All of us are Christians because of faith. Faith in what? Faith in a historic person who came at a certain time and died where everyone could see him and rose and appeared and ascended into glory. Our faith is built upon the event, a time-space event. And that's what I want you to preach. I want you to preach Jesus. You don't have to be brilliant. Are you glad? You don't have to be talented. You don't even have to be gifted. You do have to have the courage to be faithful to what happened. It's called boldness. You've got to play that song. And you can't stop because it may rub people the wrong way. And so... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That's what John said. Peter put it like this, uh, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Such an utterance was made to him by the majestic glory on the holy mountain. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance when we were with him. Therefore, uh, he says, we now have our faith made more certain because we saw this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. What was from the beginning? What our eyes have seen, our hands handled, our eyes beheld concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we beheld its glory. The eternal life was with the Father and was manifested to us. And so Philip says, said to the Ethiopian eunuch and beginning from there, he preached to him, Jesus. And so do we. That's the first thing that we have to learn. We don't have to be philosophically so brilliant that we talk people into the faith. Paul said to the Corinthians, I was a little nervous about going to you because you're such a philosophic people. And so I presumed to, knew, to know nothing among you except, how's the verse go? Jesus Christ and him crucified, that your faith should not rest upon the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so I remember the first time I had to go speak in Louisville, Texas, uh, and the guy that discipled me, I said, man, I'm about to talk to 1,500 kids. And they're all from Louisville. They're bad kids. Am I right, Debbie? You were from there. He just said to me, look, tell a joke and run to the cross. Get there as quickly as you can. And he said, brag about Jesus. He, Jesus said, the sheep hear my voice. <clears throat> Another they will not follow. They follow me, and I give eternal life to them. He said, you make the shepherd sound, and that is Calvary. And so, number one, when we go out, we simply tell people. We have a term for it. It's called the good news. News about what? Jesus. 
Look what God did. God promised. His son came in a manger, grew up perfect, claimed to be God, died for what we did, rose from the dead, ascended, and now he offers to us the life we can't live because he died for the sin that we couldn't pay for. He paid a debt we, he did not owe. Uh, he gave us a life we did not earn. Is that the gospel? There it is. And so we have to be faithful to talk about Jesus. Number two, you see it also in verse seven. It says he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And in verse 13, over disease. This is the first time in the Bible you see the conferring of the ability to do miracles. Moses did miracles because he had miracles to substantiate the giving of law. Elijah and Elisha did miracles because they were the they were miracles substantiated the order of the prophet. And now you see Christ and the 12 and he confers upon them the ability to do miracles and thus substantiate the message that fulfills the law and the prophets and that is the message of grace. And so I'm going to give you a power. I'm going to confer it on you. Though you are fishermen and just regular old guys, you will have an authority over the cause of the fall, Satan, and over the results of the fall, death and disease. It's yours. Spurgeon once said that Pharaoh makes you build bricks without straw, not God. If God tells you to go, if God tells you to speak, he will be there with you. Now, we don't have the authority. We're not apostles. And so we cannot do miracles and raise the dead and cause the lame to be healed and the blind to see. We don't do that. God did that for the first stage of the rocket to make it known that this is a message from God. But we do have an authority. You and I, by the sharing of the gospel, can do what Christ called greater works than he did. We can actually see people delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. We can see people born again. Paul said of Onesimus, my beloved child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Has God given us power? You know what I'd say? That he would say to us, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples and baptize them. And, lo, I'm with you. It's my power and it's my presence. You go tell them about my person and God is going to bless. And so he gives us the authority. I can rest in the fact that I can be an aroma of Christ unto God among those being saved and among those being lost. To one, an aroma of death unto death. They hate me. To other, an aroma of life unto life. And they respond. And so he gives us this authority. You know, I remember well, my brother Bob wandered so far from God and I prayed for him for, gosh, 20 plus years. And I looked up one Sunday, God, back in the 90s, we were over in this other building. Is it that way? That way, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I looked up in church and there was Bobby 
sitting on the inside of the aisle. It so alarmed me, I put it on tape. I said, Mother, Bobby's here. Because I knew she got the tapes. And a couple of Sundays later, he was serving communion. And I ran from the falling church. I thought that was going to come down on me. It was Bobby. And then he asked us, he said, could you come over to the house and we'll eat a brisket? And I said, sure. And we came over and all he wanted to talk about was Christ. And he said, he came up later on, he said, I read that book you did on the story of God, one end of the Bible to the other. I said, yeah. He said, it was real good. Is there anything else like this? I said, yeah, there's a few books like that about Christ. And I gave them to him. As a matter of fact, I had given him what is called Explore the Book by J. Sidlow Baxter. You remember that? But big, thick book. And I gave it to him back uh, when I got married in 74. I said, here, take a book. And it had never been opened. <laughs> All right. And I said, here, this is Explore the Book. And I pulled the book out from the bookshelf that had never been opened. I said, see, I autographed this to you. Okay. And you can read this. He started reading it. And he became impassioned about his Bible. And on one occasion, he came to me and he said, I need to ask you something. True story. He said, in the book of Ezekiel, when you see the valley of dry bones all come together to become a great army, but they have no life, and then the wind comes and they come to life, is that Israel coming together politically in a regathering, but then not having life until Christ returns? I said, yeah. <laughs> and I was amazed that I was answering a question from my brother on the depth of Ezekiel. Amazing. Then he said to me, I wish that there was some place in the church that I could share this stuff with some really bad guys. I said, oh, we got those. And I said, we have a jail ministry with a lot of our congregants that are down there. And so you can go down and get your own pod at the Denton jail and you can be church and you won't have any scheduling problems with anybody. They'll all be there. Okay. And he got to where that was the joy of his life was going down to a Denton pod and sharing the gospel with him. And, and teach. He was an excellent teacher. And uh, I, on Sunday, he would come to the first service and I would close in prayer. And as I would go down in prayer, I would see him get up and take off to get to the jail, to where that was his greatest joy was being in jail, fulfilling a prophecy by my mother. <laughs> We have power. Amen? Jesus said, I come into the strong man's house and I bind the strong man. That's what Jesus did. And then he said, I plunder his possessions. I'm going to start taking people out from the house of the devil and bringing them into the house of God. Who is it that's going to do the legwork on taking children of the devil and bringing them into the house of God? It's you and it's me. We get to do that. Isn't that amazing? We get to do that. To see men transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the, or from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. Acts 1.8, ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then you shall be my witnesses and I will give you the grace. Well, look at the next point here. The next point is in verse 8, that God is going to support them. You take care of the spiritual, the message, and I'll take care of the power, 
and the provision. Let me show you an amazing text. He instructed them they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. In the Old Testament, there's a group of men that uh, do not have to work in a job because the nation provides for them for their spiritual duties. Who are they? The priests and the Levites and the prophets that they were taken care of. If you were a Jew and you read this, you just went, whoa, whoa. He just took these 12 and conferred upon them the authority and the privilege of a Jewish priest and a Jewish prophet. Remember, Elijah was taken care of by the widow of Zarephath, Elisha by the widow of the woman of Shunem, and they were blessed because of it for taking care of the prophet. And so he says here, we're about to have a new order of leader. How many priests are seen in the book of Acts as leading in the church? Zero, not one. We see that priests began to come to the Lord later on, I believe it's in Acts 6, but you don't see any of them in leadership. Where do you see a Sadducee? Not one. Where do you see a Pharisee? We only see two that got converted, Nicodemus and Joseph, but we never see them. Who do we see? Common people. It's from this text that Paul will say later on, do not muzzle the ox while he treadeth out the grain. If you've got an ox that is separating the husk from the grain, stepping on it, treading on it, let the, the ox eat. And he says, that's why you pay your leaders. Their job is to separate the clean and the unclean, the chaff and the wheat. Let them eat as they go. As it is written, the laborer is worthy of his wage. And he quotes Christ that he said in a parallel text in the Gospel of Matthew right here. And so that is why we have the time-honored tradition in the Protestant church, and I guess Catholics too, of the passing of the plate. So that these men can, as Jesus said, those who proclaim the gospel shall live by the gospel of having total devotion to the gospel message. And so the whole point of this is, you go preach and I'll make sure that your physical needs are taken care of. That's why he says in verse, uh, verse nine, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, verse nine, don't put on two tunics. You know why you'd put on two tunics? To keep you warm when you had to sleep outside. Jesus said, don't put on two tunics. I'll take care of you. I'll look after you. And so I'll be your shelter. Our church since 1976 has never bounced a check. Do you know that? Not one time. All of our folks have been taken care of. We have like a $9 million budget and God always takes care of us because Jesus said, you just preach and I will take care of you. And so that's why Kendall makes $750,000 a year. Did y'all know that? Should I have shared? I'm sorry. God takes care of us. Okay. Well, if you'll keep looking in verse 9, but wear sandals. Verse 8, take a staff. 
Why do you make sure you take sandals and a staff? Why do you need sandals and a staff? Because you're going to walk. You're going to move. And so, this is called their mission. You can't just take one house and hole up in that house. You can't take just one city and hole up in that city. You are going to get in pairs of two, six of you, and you're going to move throughout the whole nation. And they're going to cause enough alarm that in verse 14 and following, Herod is going to think John the Baptist rose from the dead. It's going to alarm him. And so your mission is you're not just going to stay in one place. For God so loved the world. We're going to carry it out there. That's why in the book of Acts, I'm sorry, that at the end of every gospel, you see the same verse. Do you know that? Every one of them. Matthew, uh, go make disciples of all nations. Mark, preach to all creation. Luke, preach to every creature. John, as the Father sent me, so send I you. How does Acts begin? You'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then Pilate Point. To the outermost parts of the earth, we're going to take this thing out. What happens to a church when it loses its sense of mission? When that church no longer feels the passion to go out and spread the gospel, that church... Well, I'll give you a good illustration. You've got two bodies of water in Israel. Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Why is one of them teeming with fish and the other nothing grows in it? Because the Sea of Galilee has an outlet that is called the Jordan River. And it goes downhill to the lowest place on planet Earth. The Salt Sea, because it doesn't have an outlet, it's just a receptacle of otherwise good water but it's corrupted because it goes nowhere. That happens to the church. Whenever it loses its sense of missions, you're going to start doing everything for your own interest and you're going to become like a spoiled, bratty child that if I don't get my way, I start belly aching. Can that ever happen in a church? Only those full of humans will do that. And so God won't let us do that. We're not here for our own comfort. This is not a halo massage parlor, okay, where we're just going to make everybody feel good. We're going out, and that's when it gets fun. And that's why in the book of Acts, you start in Jerusalem, and then Stephen gets stoned, and they all spread out. They go to Samaria, get an Ethiopian eunuch who goes down to Ethiopia. Then you've got a gospel up in Damascus where Saul is going, and then Antioch and then Galatia, then Europe, Philippi, and then Asia. Paul goes to Rome at the end of his ministry and dies trying to get to Spain. We're going to carry this thing outward. That's why one of the greatest points of pride that I have in our church, how much of our giving goes to missions? About 40% of all of our money goes to missions. And that means we don't get it back. It just goes out, but we're doing what God told us to do, okay?
incidentally, give you something interesting here. You've got 12 apostles who go to the 12 tribes. The Gospel of Luke records there's another group of the inner circle. It's only mentioned once, and it's called the 70. And they are sent out also in Luke chapter 10. The 70 go out. Why Luke? What is the trivia question on Luke? Who's the only non-Jewish writer in the Bible? There are 66 books. 64 of them are written by Jews. Acts and the book of Luke are written by a Gentile. A Gentile whose job is to fix Gentiles. He's a doctor. And a doctor can only go so far. So he becomes a Christian. And he fixes men completely. And so Luke records that Jesus told the 70 to go out with much the same instructions. They were, these were the ones that came back to him saying, we saw demons cast out. We saw people healed. Jesus said, don't rejoice that demons were cast out. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And Jesus said, I just saw Satan when you were preaching. I saw Satan in heaven fall from heaven like lightning. And the downfall has come. Why 70? 12 men for 12 tribes. When you go to the book of Genesis and you see the beginning of the nations, where in the book of Genesis do you see the origin of what became the nations? Genesis 11. It's the Tower of Babel. Tower of confusion. Men tried to replace God. A city, a tower, a name for ourselves. They were secular humanist. And they called themselves Babel, the gate of God. God said, no, you're confused. You will not know right, wrong from Mr. Potato Head or Dr. Seuss. Okay. You're going to, you're completely confused. And it says that out of the Tower of Babel, they went forth in different tongues and they became the nations. When you count them, guess how many nations there are? 70. And so we have 12 to go to Israel, and we will have 70 to go to the world because God is a worldwide God. And so their support and now their mission worldwide. Keep watching. In verse 10 and 11, we have now the severity of their message. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. It says in the Gospel of Matthew that you find out who is worthy in that town, a faithful Jew, because they should be those that become Christians. Because if you have been following the law of God, the next step will obviously be John the Baptist and Jesus and the twelve. So you find out who is worthy and you stay there. And when you come into that house, Matthew 10 says, you issue your blessing, your greeting. And if they are worthy, your blessing will abide on that house. You are going to be a blessing. By receiving you, they're receiving me. And by by receiving me, they're receiving the one who sent me. You men have, and this is our next point, there's a severity of your message. To receive you is to receive God. The widow of Zarephath 
when she gave the flower that she had to this stranger, Elijah, and they poured oil out and it kept miraculously coming out and took care of her and her son. She received the prophet and she had a blessing come upon her that came upon nobody else. Elisha went to the woman of Shunem and she built a little part onto her house that it would have a bed, a chair, a table, and he could stop and rest. And at the end of that ministry that she gave to that prophet, he said to Gehazi, Elisha said, what can I do for this woman that has done so much for me? Should I speak to her to the king or to the captain of the army? And Gehazi went to her and the woman said, I've got everything that I need. I leave among my people. Gehazi said, there's one thing she doesn't have. She doesn't have a son. There's nobody to take care of her and her husband's elderly. And Elisha said, she does now. At this time next year, you're going to have a kid. In other words, whenever you receive the prophet, the blessing of God came. Jesus says the same thing about these guys. Are you telling me that you and I have become a new order of prophets and priests? Yes. And to reject them rejects God. And so in verse 10, when you enter a house, you stay there until you leave the town. Any place that doesn't receive you or doesn't listen to you as you go out, if we're not wanted, then we will leave. But as you go out, he's going to tell you to do something. And if you were a Jew reading this, you stop dead in your tracks. Whenever a Jew would go outside of the parameters of Israel, when they would go across the Jordan, or they would go north into Damascus, or south down into the desert, or into Egypt, and they came back, they had to do something. Once you hit the border crossing, you had to do something. Because we couldn't bring in anything from the Gentile world into the nation. They had messed with idols before and been kicked out of the land. So guess what they had to do? Take off your sandals and beat them together and shake the dust of the unbeliever off your feet. Jesus said, I want you boys to do that. To who? The Gentiles? No. To your fellow Jewish countrymen. But if I do that, Jesus, I'm making a statement. And this statement's got a lot of severity to it. You're saying to me that I'm to regard them simply because they refused me and the message of you and of God who sent you, that I'm to regard them as pagan, as outside the covenant. And he would have said, that is exactly what you tell them. You tell them they have just rejected the totality of God. And so that is the severity of the message. And if you have a cross-reference, it says Acts 13, 46, Paul did this. The synagogue refused him, and he said, you are unworthy of eternal life. I am going to the Gentiles. And he shook the dust off his feet. That is the ultimate of boldness right there. And you're rejecting me. You have just rejected God. 
Paul in Romans 9 will say this, they are not all Israel who are descended physically from Israel, but through Isaac, your seed will be called. You're not a Jew just because you physically are a Jew. You have to be an Isaac. You're born of the word and the power and the faithfulness of God. You're born again. And so, verse 12. Here is their preaching. They went out and they preached that men should repent. The same as John the Baptist, the same as Jesus, the same as the prophets. They are to be fundamentalists. The most fundamental message they have is that you, in your keeping of law, cannot save yourself. You are to recognize your sin, whoever you are. And you are to have a metanoia, a changing of the mind. And you now turn toward God and you accept as a free gift the forgiveness of God. And so these men are now preaching, we would call it sola fide, faith alone. They are returning. Whenever you read the book of Romans, it's nothing but an Old Testament Bible study. Do y'all know that? Every single chapter of Romans carries a verse from the Old Testament. It's nothing but an Old Testament revisiting of what God says salvation is. Abraham did what to be reckoned as righteousness? Abraham believed God. It was faith. Just as David speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sin has been covered, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David was saved by faith in the mercy of God. Abraham by faith and the coming mercy of God. Jesus said, when you go preach, you preach this fundamental message. When you go to the Old Testament temple on the feast of Yom Kippur, the day of covering, the nation's sins were moved back. Why? Because they had as a nation been obedient to law? No. How did the nation go from year to year? A priest would take a perfect animal, sacrifice it, and all the nation stayed in their homes, just like Passover. And he would take the blood, and he would enter through the sacrificial altar. That was the turnstile, was the cross. And he would go into the very holy of holies, and there he would place blood on the mercy seat that was in between the law and the presence of God. There would be blood mediating for the nation, and the nation would trust the sacrifice that the high priest offered in himself going before God. Does that sound familiar to y'all? Of the high priest offering the perfect shed blood of a perfect sacrifice that would represent us before a holy God and we would be saved by nothing of our own. And so that's the Old Testament message. Adam and Eve sinned. They tried to cover their guilt with themselves, fig leaves, God said, drop your fig leaves. I will kill an animal. I will give you the skin. Cover yourself with the blood of the lamb. And so that's the message of the Old Testament. These men are becoming reformers. They're reformers. We're going back to the original casting of what the Bible says. So... Let me show you something interesting. We got all the time in the world. The world's sick and dying and 
There's no football, all right? I want you to look at something. Look at Luke, would you? In Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18... Yes. If you'll look at, in verse 8, at the end of this parable on how in the church age we're to be praying at all times and don't lose heart. Have y'all learned yet that we as Christians are not going to bring about the kingdom of God on our own? Have y'all figured out that we're not going to convert our country? Does anybody still think we're going to do that? He says, I want you to pray and don't lose heart. No matter what crazy people get elected. That's in the Greek, okay? And he says in verse, verse 8, I tell you, God will bring about justice for them suddenly. When the church is raptured and the tribulation begins, and then he returns, we're going to get justice someday, quickly. In verse 8, however... When the Son of Man comes, when, as opposed to if. It's not if I come. I'm coming. Will he find faith on the earth? Let me put this in Living Bible. Don't you guys worry about me doing what I said I'm going to do. The question is, when I come, am I going to find you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Am I going to find the faith? Or I'm going to find a bunch of compromising liberals. That's in the Hebrew. Right All right. Am I going to find some people that hold to the Bible, that hold to Christ, that live out their faith and are hanging tough in a tough day? Am I going to find your faith? He ends the parable with a question. Don't worry about me. Be worried about you. When I come, what am I going to find? And then in verse 9... He explains the faith. He told this parable to some people who, what's your next three words say? Trusted in themselves. That's called self-righteous religion. Are you going to go to heaven? Yes. Why? I've never heard anybody. I've never tried to do evil. I've done this. I've done that. And you give me your resume. You're now trusting in yourself. You're into the Jewish, God love them, heresy that they got into of legal righteousness. Now, verse 9, and then when you trust in yourselves, how do you see others? You view them with contempt. And he told a story about two men that went to the temple. One is a Pharisee. I thank thee, O God, that I'm not like other men. I'm better than everyone else. Thank you that I'm especially better than this idiot right here. This tax collector, thank you that I'm better than him. The tax collector will not lift his eyes to heaven because all he can see is God. And he beats his chest because that's the problem is himself. And he says, God, be merciful. Mercy to me, the sinner. You see how Christ ended it? Verse 17, I'm sorry, verse, uh, hang on, there it is. Verse 14, I tell you, this man 
went to his house justified. He was saved rather than the other. Why is this parable here? When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith? Question, what's the faith? Do you trust in yourself or you trust in the grace of God? That's the faith. And so, you guys, this church, amen, we got a hold of the faith. To the inerrancy of the Bible, the deity of Christ, his death on the cross, and the supernaturalness of God's salvation. Now, that's what the apostles had to go do. I want you guys to reset this thing. And I want you to go back to Genesis. We're going to preach salvation by faith, like Moses preached, and Elijah preached, and Isaiah preached. Okay? So go back here to the Gospel of Mark. Spurgeon used to say, whenever you preach, you should throw in the Gospel like Sugar in the tea. And he said, you would do well to throw in a second lump because the elect of God love to hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And your last point is in verse 13. He told them in verse 7, go out, I give you authority. Verse 13. And 12, they went out. Verse 13, they were casting out many demons. The cause of the fall and anointing with all many sick people and healing them, the results of the fall. The last point is called their impact. Question, did God hold up his end of the deal? Yes, he did. You preach. I'll give you authority. You just preach, and I'll take care of you, and you're going to see impact. And they did. Question, did they see, this is very important, did they see the nation saved? They did not. Question two, did they faithfully represent Christ to where God sent them? Yes, they did. Question three, did they call out from the nation a people? Yes, they did. In the book of Acts, the first time Peter's going to preach, we're going to have 5,000 believe. The next time we're going to have 4,000 believe. And that's our job. It's not to convert anybody. It's to make the sound and let God call out his elect. Lydia, God opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Their job was to be faithful to God and to influence their culture and to preach until Christ returned. Does God command us to convert our country. No. Does he command us to establish a kingdom right now? No. We can't do that. Have y'all figured this out about our country? We're a country full of sinners. We got to start our country on the edge of Reformation ideas. They were called the, pil the pilgrims. That were English Puritans. That were English Reformation believers. And so that's what landed on the shores of Massachusetts. And they influenced the Christian worldview. They influenced the shaping of our government. But by the end of the 1600s, we had begun a college to train men for the gospel message. It was called Harvard. 
after the man that donated his library. By the end of the 1600s, they had the Hollis, H-O-L-L-I-S, the Hollis Chair of Divinity at Harvard was now chaired by a deist that denied the deity of Jesus Christ. The largest church in the country, uh, First Congregational Church uh, Boston, was pastored by a deist, Charles Chauncey, that denied the inerrance of the Bible and the deity of Christ. And that's why they started Yale. And by the 1800s, the students at Yale nicknamed themselves Voltaire and Rousseau. They denied the substitution of Christ. Uh, they started Andover Seminary, the first seminary begun in our country to train gospel ministers, was because Harvard and Yale had fallen, and within a generation, that seminary had gone liberal. And so our nation has had in it the seeds of rebellion since Jamestown. It's just that we were blessed with the greatest of all Western theology other than Jerusalem. We were blessed with it at our inception, and we got spoiled. Our patriotism and our fundamentalism were coextensive. Have times changed? Yeah. And so we have always, as you study church history, our country has always gotten further and further away from the gospel message. All you need to be, have be Satan, all you need is teenagers. Now, let me explain. You just need the next generation that are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. That's all you need. And you'll keep getting farther away. I wrote it in a letter I sent out to the church. The easiest job description in the world is to be Satan. You're giving men what they want. The rejection of God. When we preach the gospel, it's like a seed on hard ground that God has to break up. When Satan preaches his message, it is like red dye and fluid. It just takes off. It's easy being the devil, except you have to go to the lake of fire. Okay. And so our job is just to preach and let God be God. And for us to set us up a place and to say to all these guys, are you tired of craziness? Are you tired of insanity? Well, come on in. We have an infinite personal God that has made himself known through history supernaturally that loves us and gave his son and can save you and give you a way to live above the pile and will return and fix this thing someday. We've got the perfect system. And so that's all our job is. Did y'all get all this? This is seminal Christianity. Review. We have a message, and that message is Jesus. We have a power, and that is given by Jesus to convert men. We have the promise by Jesus to take care of our physical needs. We have the uh, commission given us by Jesus to go to the whole world. We have a severity to our message because we represent Jesus. To reject us is to reject God. Our preaching is not to be elaborate. We go back to square one, to the faith of faith in Christ. And lastly, we can have impact right where we are to see men changed. You know, 
Debbie, when I preached the first time at Louisville High School, I don't know, I think you skipped out that day. You went to the bowling alley and smoked, okay? <laughs> that was my message. It's Christ offers us peace, pardon, power, and purpose. That was my message. He gives us peace because he has forgiven our sins and made us right with him. He has given us the power to change and he's given us a purpose to be able to have eternal purpose to preach this. And so God has given us peace, pardon, power, and purpose. You know, when I was young in Waco, back when I was growing up in the 60s, we had a television, we'd only get two channels. Anybody else identify with this? Down in Waco, we'd get six and 10. KCEN and KWTX, that's all we'd get. And often our family would not go to church. 50 out of 52 Sundays, we wouldn't go to church. Okay, we'd stay at home. And so I would, you know, Sunday morning TV isn't that scintillating, but I would turn on our black and white. Anybody remember TV? It was black and white. I'd turn on the black and white and I would watch something. I think God providentially put it in my life. I was always fascinated. It was called the Lutheran Hour. You remember that, buddy? The Lutheran Hour. And you remember the claymation cartoon? Davy and Goliath. That's exactly right. And uh, Davy and Goliath, they were kind of a claymation deal. And they would always have a tension at the beginning of the little deal. And then they would resolve it. Right would always win out. And so I would always watch the, the moral problem. It'd be a selfish kid or lying or not obeying your parents or sneaking around or something like this. And then it would resolve in repentance and in faith. And there was the Lutheran hour. And I would watch Davy and Goliath. I was 23 at the time when I was young. Wow. I was a little guy. And then at the end of it, the guy would sing a little line of a song and you would see total darkness. Remember this, buddy? And there would be a, a candle it was lit. And that's the way the Lutheran hour would end. It was a light in the dark. And he would sing, if everyone lit just one little candle, what a bright world it would be. And I thought, I'll be darned. And then I forget it and go out and get drunk. Okay. <laughs> but it made an impact on me. And I would watch it week after week. If everyone lit just one little candle, what a bright world. John said, the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Light. And so that is our job, is to be light. Seminal Christianity. Father in heaven, thank you for a Sunday. Thank you that Kendall could lead us in worship, and Nicole could sing as few of us can sing, and just lift up something of great quality that we could hear Mark, this text inspired in this boy to write down that we 20 centuries later could read it and be blessed. And so we, this new order on the earth, these who take out of our treasure Things old and things new. The Old Testament and the new. And a great treasure. We pray that you might find us faithful. Father, might there be no 
lustful, financial, emotional temptation that would be so momentarily sweet as to nullify the eternal significance of what you teach us. We, your new priesthood, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.